2: Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alina, who do we have with us today? We are pleased to welcome Duncan Barrett, who is an author and historian specialising in biography and memoirs. He's written many books, like The Girls Who Went to War, G.I. Brides, and his new newest book, When the Germans Came, The True Stories of Life Under Occupation in the Channel Islands. Welcome, Duncan.
3: Hi, good to be here, or virtually be here. <laughs> I'm sat in my <laughs> uh, bedroom at home, but you know. <laughs>
2: it's how nice it's to imagine locked down. I'm, I'm
3: somewhere else. Uh, it's all right, I suppose. We're kind of gradually getting used to it. Um, I've got a four-year-old, so we're doing what's kind of notionally referred to as homeschooling, but in practice seems to be a lot of watching uh, CBBs. Um, cartoons and kind of trying to stop him from going insane Uh, we've been doing daily cosmic kids yoga that's been an experience you know so it's it's not too bad I guess we're quite lucky We, we were living in London I mean I grew up in London we moved down to Sussex about six months ago and I think we couldn't have done that at a better time because at least we can you know when we go out for our exercise we can walk out onto the downs and just kind of go for miles if we want so we're lucky in that respect.
2: Oh, wow. I've got to say, I'm kind of jealous. That sounds Mm.
3: excellent. (laughs) I know, I know. Well, a friend of mine tweeted yesterday, though, he'd he'd moved his family over to Skye just before the lockdown happened, and he he posted this picture of their walk in this kind of stunning uh, island scenery. So I guess, you know, it's the luck of the draw where you happen to be when you get locked down.
2: There's so many aspects of the Second World War that we do openly and regularly talk about. For example, D-Day, Pearl Harbour, Dunkirk, Battle of Britain, but the subject of the occupied British Isles doesn't really come up very often. And in all of my reading, I think the only time I came across the subject was when I was reading about Agent Zigzag. So can you tell us how you came to writing a book on the occupied British Isles?
3: Well, it's a story that has fascinated me for a number of years, I think, really. It's not something I learned about at school. I mean, when I was at school, we learned all about the Second World War. We learnt uh, about the rise of the Nazis. We learnt about um, the occupation in France. And I'm pretty sure no one ever mentioned that there was British territory that was occupied by the Germans and British subjects who lived under the uh, Nazi yoke effectively. Um, And when I sort of first started to to find out a little bit about this, it was something that kind of always fascinated me. I I talked to a friend whose grandmother lived in Jersey, I think, during the occupation. This was many years ago, his birthday party. Uh, And he mentioned he, he couldn't tell me exactly what the story was because in the family, they didn't really know what had happened, but something had happened during the war that had split the whole family right down the middle, um, something that his grandmother had done. I mean, if I were to put a guess on it, I'd say it involved a German soldier and some kind of local scandal uh, because that certainly was something that happened quite a lot. But it just, that kind of fascinated me, this idea that um, there was this situation where people's personal decisions, small things that individuals might do could kind of have repercussions in the family for many years. Um, and I've written quite a lot about the home front in Britain. Uh, I, I've written several books about, uh, particularly women's lives in the home front in Britain and the sort of ordinary person's life during war in a sense. And in some ways I started to think the Channel Islands have the ultimate home front story because they've got all of that. They've got all the kind of struggle of living under wartime of the kind of anxieties of war of the kind of make do and mend of the kind of daily struggle, um, which in some ways feels kind of oddly appropriate at the moment as we are adjusting to these new ways of life and kind of living without things that we previously took for granted and so on, making do one way or another. But they've also got this other fascinating element, which is that you have people living side by side with the enemy. Um, And the last book that I wrote before this one uh, was a book called The Girls Who Went to War, which was about women in the forces. And one of the women in that was a a woman called Jessie, who I interviewed, who was in the ATS, the Women's Army. And she was very, very uh, patriotic, very anti-German. She signed up for the ATS because she wanted to bash the Germans. She managed to get herself sent to an anti-aircraft battery so she could literally be um, helping to shoot German planes out of the sky. She said to me, you know, I didn't want to just work in an office. I didn't want to be uh, doling out soup in the kitchen. I wanted to, you know, tangibly be, um, (laughs) you know, helping kill Germans, essentially. She was very kind of gung-ho about it. Um, But, When the war came to an end, the ACAC batteries were disbanded and she ended up being sent um, with the ATS into Germany and working in a a depot there, working alongside German civilians. And by this point, she'd married, her husband had been um, killed in the war and she met a German woman there who um, gradually, you know, she started to learn her story and she found out this woman had also been widowed. And furthermore, this woman had been widowed. uh, Her husband had been in the Luftwaffe and had been shot down by an ACAC gun flying over Britain. And so for Jessie, it was this real moment, a sort of epiphany for her, that she and this woman had this fundamental life experience in common, you know, despite the fact they were on opposite sides and had been, you know, essentially fighting each other or kind of, you know, the countries had been fighting each other. Um, And so it was also that element, I suppose, that fascinated me. You know, how did people cope for five years uh, where they couldn't just see the enemy as this kind of... um, you know, monstrous, almost cartoonish figure, this inhuman force where the humanity of the enemy is kind of right there in front of them because they're living in the house next door. They might even be living in your spare room. You know, one way or another, however you dealt with it and whatever you decided to do, uh, and you know, some people responded in very different ways to others, you couldn't really fail to acknowledge that these were human beings with their own lives and their own dreams and their own families and their own humanity, basically. So that was the kind of other element that fascinated me about the story.
2: So the story really begins, doesn't it, with Dunkirk? So just hash up for people quickly why that is.
3: Yeah, it's kind of basically in the sort of immediate aftermath of Dunkirk. I mean, basically, the, you know, the German forces, they've had their blitzkrieg. They've kind of swept through Europe. Um, you know, we've brought as many as we could of our people back. It's a moment of kind of high anxiety, really. Um, and you have this situation where, so the, the Germans have the coast of France, the Channel Islands which have been British territory since the time of William the Conqueror uh, are actually closer, I mean they're in the Channel, but they're closer to the coast of France than they are to the coast of Britain. They're kind of, you know, just a stone's throw um, from the coast of France. You can, On a good day you can kind of see the coast of France. Um, and so there's a meeting of the War Cabinet in London. Winston Churchill, relatively new in the job, is presented with this dilemma where his advisors are saying to him, look, um, you know, the the Germans have taken France. Uh, It's gonna be very easy for them to take the Channel Islands. We don't think we should fight for them. Basically, this is not gonna be worth the uh, use of materiel of men and so on to try and defend these islands. Uh, We're probably not gonna be able to. And actually what everyone was expecting at the time was the next step for the Germans was to cross the Channel and invade mainland Britain. That was the worry that was on everyone's minds. And indeed, that the Germans you know, were planning for. They had this plan Operation Sea Lion, uh, which was going to be the um, you know, effectively the, the inverse of the D-Day landings. They were going to come over uh, to our side, invade Britain, and probably you know, it, all going well from their point of view, occupy Britain as well. Um, so ultimately, Churchill was persuaded. He was he was very annoyed about it. You can go and read the min- minutes of this meeting in the um, National Archives at Kew. And it says the prime minister expressed the view that it was repugnant to give up the islands and I sort of I read that and I sort of wondered you know is repugnant a kind of um, acceptable gloss on whatever he actually said in that meeting (laughs) because you you (laughs) get this sense of Churchill seriously unhappy with what he's being told you know he felt as a matter of principle we ought to be defending British territory we ought to be protecting British subjects Um, but ultimately his advisers convinced him that it wasn't worth the risk, that, you know, that point of principle was not worth losing the whole war over. So they took the decision to demilitarise the islands. They, they sent the message out. There were several thousand troops stationed on Guernsey and Jersey, who very hurriedly the next morning were rushed back uh, to mainland Britain. They left their breakfasts half eaten on their, on the table behind them, basically, as so they were rushed onto these boats to be got away. And then this period uh, of anxiety began in the islands of what was going to happen next. Everyone anticipated the Germans would be arriving kind of anytime soon. And um, the, the uh, edict had come over that basically as well as removing these soldiers and also the lieutenant governors who were the kind of heads of state uh, sent from mainland Britain in the island. So they had this kind of two tier uh, or two um, this sort of dual system of governance where they had the local Uh, legislatures with the bailiffs at the head of that and then they had the lieutenant governors who were crown appointees who were sent over Um, they would also be removed and so the islands would sort of be left to look after themselves and they did allow them time to evacuate basically they were encouraged if they wanted to to send children uh, and in some cases mothers with children over to the mainland and anyone else who wanted to evacuate could Uh, If they chose to in that kind of window before the Germans arrived. And so in the island, there was a period of really frantic um, worry and kind of uh, Initially with the children, I mean, you you know, even people who weren't sure what was the right thing to do They didn't know it was going to be five years They thought it might be six months or a year or something but at the same time sending a child off to another country that they uh, you know, may never have visited where they don't know anyone Uh, where they're going to be relying on, you know, the kind of support of strangers and you're going to be cut off from them. Terrible dilemma. Um, And many people kept their children with them. Others sent them away. Uh, Many islanders went away themselves. Others decided to stay and kind of um, face the Germans together. But it was a a very anxious period for those people living in the islands trying to work out, you know, what was the right decision to make in that situation.
2: Can you tell us a bit more about Mary and Ruth uh, Lee Beater's decision to stay on the island? Because that quite interested me.
3: Yeah, these were two girls who had, uh, (laughs) unfortunately, they had promised their parents had gone ahead, basically, that they'd agreed the whole family was going to leave the island. And their parents had said, Okay, well, we'll get the boat and you girls uh, sort of tidy up, you know, pack up the house, basically, and then follow a few days later. Um, And these two girls got to the point where they were at the harbour about to get on the boat. And it has to be said, a lot of people turned back from evacuating for various reasons, some because they'd been convinced it was the wrong thing to do. There was kind of pressure in the islands, particularly in Jersey. Uh, there were politicians in the States uh, referring to those leaving as cowards, as rabbits and rats. One of them was the phrase that one of them used. Um, that wasn't really the case in, the, in these girls' situation. For them, it was much more personal. Basically, they got there, they saw the boats they were going to have to get on, And and another disincentive was these boats were massively overcrowded. There were reports of them being pursued by German submarines across the channel. Uh, It was not a very appealing prospect, but the thing that kind of um, really made the decision for them I think in their case was that they both had boyfriends. One had a fiance, one had a boyfriend and their boyfriends were having as they felt, to stay in their islands to run their families' businesses. One was running a farm, I can't remember what the other one was doing. Basically, they decided to stay anyway because they felt they couldn't leave. Um, and ultimately, the girls decided, well, we think we'd rather stay with our boyfriends than follow our parents as we promised to. So they made the decision to go back and they moved in with one of the um, one of the boys. His his mother ran the local fish and chip shop, so they moved into the house above the chip shop and, and lived there, basically. But um, so that was just one example of a family being split, literally because um, you know, someone changed their mind or someone um, didn't do what they said they would do. There were other stories I came across of, for example, there was a married couple who, um, I think the, the husband was gonna stay, he sent his wife over to Britain and then they, they both changed their mind, basically both of them independently I and mean, then they couldn't communicate with each other because it was all such a frantic rush, independently decided they couldn't bear to be separated. And so they both crossed back across the channel the other way and ended up with him stuck in England and her stuck in Guernsey for the duration of the war, basically. Um, So, you know, whatever decision you made in those kind of very high pressure moments, that was what you had to live with for five years. And for the people who sent their children away that could lead to real um, problems because, you know, if you don't see your kids, you know, five years to an adult is a long enough spell, but five years to a growing child, of not seeing their parents, could completely destroy those family relationships.
2: That's awful. Um, So the last British soldiers leave on the 20th of June, 1940. What happens after that? And how do the civilians on the
3: island remember that day? Well, when the first, uh, so when the soldiers left, I think uh, there was probably a degree of um, anxiety, I suppose is, is the main emotion that people were feeling. But the focus was much more on, I don't think the focus was so much on the fact that they're not defended as, what do we do next? You know, it was this decision, do we stay or do we go? Uh, what's what's the right thing for us to do? What's, what's the least risky alternative? Because the fact is, you know, the ones who went to the mainland, they were gonna be bombed, they were gonna be blitzed. They were gonna experience that side of war. The ones who stayed were gonna have to deal with the Germans. And, you know, in some ways, whatever decision you made could end up um, sort of being the wrong one. So I think there was, so there was this period of anxiety. There was this, and in some ways, maybe people calmed down a little bit as that time uh, kind of went on. A lot of people changed their minds. I mean, particularly in Jersey, as I say, where there was this um, political pressure not to leave because the people running the islands were starting to worry if too many people evacuated. First of all, uh, in mainland Britain, there would be a kind of refugee crisis, basically, because there would be, I mean, there were about 90,000-odd Channel Islanders um, at this point, who, you know, 90,000 refugees turning up in Britain, and, you know, needing places to live, needing money, needing jobs, needing food, all of these sort of things would be a sort of humanitarian crisis. Equally in the islands, if too many people left, there wouldn't be enough to run the farms to kind of keep the islands going uh to i mean they would they had never quite been self-sufficient they relied a lot on trade with mainland britain anyway and this was one problem that kind of came up once the germans did arrive but um if too many people left it would just be impossible for those who stayed to keep things ticking over so there was this kind of real pressure and a lot of people as i say you know many many thousands um changed their mind In, in jersey i think there were something like 20-something thousand who registered to evacuate and just under 7,000 actually left. In Guernsey slightly more left, about 17,000 decided to make that journey in the end. But then basically there was a period for many people of waiting and then what happened was that that calm was suddenly punctured on the 28th of June uh, by a bombing raid by the Germans. this, I think, came completely out of the blue for a lot of people. There'd been German planes flying over, doing reconnaissance, taking photographs. People had sort of got used to that. And then suddenly these planes came over and started dropping bombs instead. And this was what was rec- referred to um, at the time as reconnaissance in force, insofar as it wasn't really a raid designed to particularly you know, cause any sort of specific damage um, for military reasons. It was designed to see whether the islands had genuinely been demilitarized, whether there was anything that was going to fight back, were there anti-aircraft guns still in the islands? Um, and it turned out there was just one gun on the um, on a boat in the harbour in Guernsey. I think that was the sum total of resistance that was put up against this raid. So it sort of convinced the Germans. Okay, fine, we can literally walk in and you know take these islands unchallenged. In the meantime, though, forty-four people have been killed. Uh, there was horrific bombing in the capitals of, um, you know, both Jersey and Guernsey. A uh, lot of damage done. Uh, people being machine gunned in the streets. I mean, I spoke to about 100 Channel Islanders researching this book. Everyone sort of had some story about the bombing of the islands and the trauma that they felt on that evening, basically, because everyone knew someone who was caught up in it, whether they'd been killed or injured or knew someone who died or had lost someone, Uh, because these were small kind of quiet, you know, these are kind of holiday islands. Uh, These are kind of sleepy communities in some ways. Um, And this was something that had never Happened in their experience before. You know, they never really expected the war to come to them in that way. They'd sent people off to fight in the First World War. They'd sent people off again in the Second World War already, um, but they did not expect to have the war kind of raining down on them in that way.
2: With the bombing now over, the logical stage would be a full-scale invasion of the islands and the surrender, wouldn't it?
3: Yeah. Although, actually, what happened was the invasion, if you want to call it that, happened in kind of dribs and drabs. It was quite gradual. They'd had this bombing. The bombing had kind of really um, pummeled people into submission, in effect. I mean, we talked about shock and awe in the invasion of Iraq. It was kind of the same effect, I think. Um, The people were absolutely uh, stunned by what had just happened to them. Um, And the very next day, an ultimatum was dropped um, over Jersey, uh, demanding that the islands kind of formally, there had to be a formal act of surrender. They had to fly white flags from kind of prominent locations, the airports, the kind of centers of, of government and that sort of thing. But also in Jersey, they demanded that every single person had to surrender individually. Every single house had to fly a white flag of its own to kind of indicate, I suppose, that um, not only were the governments surrendering, but that the people were essentially saying, look, we're not going to put up any resistance We're, you you know, you've won this, we're, we're kind of, we're done as far as this is concerned. Um, And this was a really humiliating experience for a lot of people I spoke to. They told me how depressing it was, you know, going down the street and seeing all these white, most people didn't have a white flag, but they would fly, you know, a bedsheet off a a broom handle, or in some cases, like a a pair of bloomers off a, you, you know, hung off the chimney pot or something, whatever they could do, everyone had to have something white, um, sticking out of their house, basically. And so I think this again kind of reinforced this idea that they had just been completely, um, y- you know, pummeled into submission, basically. Um, so the mood was one then of kind of depression, but also anxiety. You know, there was this real anxiety about what is it actually gonna be like when these Germans arrive. I mean, a lot of people's ideas of the Germans came from propaganda, particularly first world war propaganda uh, that they remembered, you, you-, you know, from, a couple of decades earlier, they were expecting uh, rape and pillage, they were expecting the worst kind of abuses of war. I mean I spoke to a guy who attended a, um, w- was in St Helia, the capital of Jersey, and went to, there was a kind of, um, the bailiff who was the, the head of the government there basically came out and addressed a crowd in the town square to try and reassure them and tell them what was going to happen and loads of people had gathered. They were busy painting the town square huge um, white cross in the middle, which was one of the specifications of the Germans, Um, and this guy I spoke to said that there were a couple of women standing there in front of him, incredibly anxious, and one of them said to the other, uh, you know, as soon as he's finished, we need to go home and barricade our doors, because when the Germans arrived, there's going to be a lot of rape by nightfall. That was their expectation. It was going to be the worst kind of abuses of war. Now, in fact, what happened was very different. The Germans did arrive, they accepted the surrender, But it was all done very um, politely, very kind of formally, very graciously in a sense. It was all very well stage managed. And this was for a number of reasons. I mean, the Channel Islands occupation is often referred to as a model occupation. And that was partly because on both sides, on both the German side and the local side, there were strong reasons for trying to keep things cordial, trying to keep things as kind of soft, as soft an occupation as possible, basically. The Germans wanted to make a good impression not least because since they did ultimately intend to occupy mainland Britain, they thought that if they could point to the Channel Islands and say, look, we've already been occupying British territory, we haven't been shooting people in the streets, we haven't been abusing people, Uh, our soldiers have been well behaved, they've done as they're told, um, that that would be a kind of PR exercise effectively, it would limit resistance in mainland Britain when the time came to try to occupy the mainland. Um, And from the local leaders' point of view, they had basically, you know, to some extent been abandoned uh, by the British mainland. You know, the troops have been withdrawn. They've been given the message in no uncertain terms. We're not fighting for you. We're not going to protect you militarily. Your job is to get through this as best you can. And the way they interpreted that was we have to try and protect our people from, you know, any kind of abuse, any kind of um, poor treatment at the hands of the Germans. And the best way to do that really is to try to manage that relationship um, in this kind of, cordial a way as possible. So to begin with at least it was, you know, in some senses this this, this notion of the model occupation uh, did hold fairly well. There were not the kind of abuses that you know, had been happening already even in France. Generally the soldiers as well were on their best behavior, uh, partly because they had scored the cushiest posting. If you were a, a German soldier, uh, you know, to be sent to the Channel Islands, which, I mean, I don't know if you two have been there, but they are absolutely stunning, particularly, Mm -hmm. you know, in summer. This was June. The islands are at their best. The sea is glistening. I mean, I spoke to a German soldier who uh, was was sent over to Guernsey. He said, I couldn't believe it. I thought I was being sent on holiday. Um, He took a boat over from France and there were dolphins following the boat across the, you know, (laughs) across into the harbour. He said they were. he and his friends were so thrilled when they arrived and saw the place they'd been sent to they went to the local hotel and ordered a round of drinks to toast the Fuhrer for sending them there. So there was this kind of feeling among the ordinary German soldiers that, you know, they could not have been sent to a better spot. Basically no one wanted to rock the boat. No one wanted to get in trouble or, you know, push things in any way. So they were very well behaved themselves, uh, partly because they were in an incredibly good mood and partly because they didn't want to do anything that could get them in trouble and see them sent to a posting somewhere else.
2: But what about the, uh civilian population as this five years um pans out what's life like for them under occupation and does it differ from island to island
3: yeah it did differ to some extent i mean broadly speaking it was it was a soft occupation compared to say the occupation in france or elsewhere in mainland europe um but at the same time things did gradually deteriorate so it started off as kind of um cosy as possible. I mean, the locals were shocked by this. They were expecting, as I say, these kind of the worst kinds of abuses. And in fact, they found German soldiers holding the door open for them, buying ice creams for kids on the beach, you you know, kind of, they were a bit stunned to begin with, I think, by the fact that they were being so uh, cordial and so sort of amiable. Um, But so it started relatively well. Then what happened was as time went on, various things, uh, there were kind of flashpoints of one kind or another, which Uh, caused a sort of deterioration in that relationship. Um, So for one thing, the Germans kept going back on their uh, word that they'd given about certain things. So for example, when they first arrived, they said people would be allowed to keep their radios and listen to the BBC. Um, Then they banned the radios and and said everyone had to hand their radios in. Um, there, There were instances where acts of very kind of low-key resistance, basically, were punished. And it was always a bit of a dilemma for the Germans how severely to punish these things. I mean, they didn't execute anyone in the islands. They would arrest quite a number of people. Some of them would be sent to prison in the islands themselves. Some of them would be sent over to France to go to prison there. Um, But there were sort of moments that raised tensions. Uh, The V-sign campaign, for example, which was something that happened all over Europe as well, where people were chalking V for victory signs, um, sort of kind of subversive graffiti basically against the germans and in the channel islands a lot of kids were involved in this campaign as well they were chalking these uh, not just on walls but on the seats of the germans bicycles. so they'd go around with these on their bums basically so there was a kind of um i think a lot of people were kind of taking pleasure in that as an opportunity to sort of you know stick two fingers up to the germans things like this you know as minor as they might have seen they did gradually sort of deteriorate that relationship and then as the war went on um the situation with food got worse and worse. Uh, the amount of food people had was getting less and less. The Germans seemed to be taking more and more of it. And so gradually, uh, bit by bit, those relationships started to deteriorate. And in particular, actually fairly early on in the occupation, there was a real flashpoint where um, Churchill had, as I say, been very reluctant to give up the islands. And what he, uh, he, he didn't really ever plan to militari- go back and kind of militarily try and take them back. Hitler was always convinced Churchill was going to do that. He poured enormous, vast resources into fortifying the islands against, uh, you know, against invasion from the British, essentially, um, to the point that his advisors in Berlin referred to his insulvan, his island madness, because he was so obsessed with the idea of keeping the Channel Islands once he'd taken them. Um, But actually, there was no real plan to you know, try and go in and militarily seize the islands. But there were these um, what were known as nuisance raids where they would you know, send some commandos in. They might try and take some prisoners. They cause a bit of damage. They cause a bit of trouble, basically. Um, and in order to plan for these raids, what they would do is they would send men um, who were local men basically from the islands but were now serving in the British forces. They would send them back uh, undercover basically as spies. So they would land them in the dead of night they would go and kind of, you know, hide out. Maybe hide with relatives if they could, um, and do some reconnaissance. You know, make a note of how many planes there were at the airport, where the, you know, where the anti-aircraft guns were, um, how many soldiers there were. Try and get as much information as they could, and then, you know, slip back out again, again in the dead of night without being seen. Um, and a couple of times, what happened was that this went wrong, went badly wrong. These guys found themselves stuck on the islands with no way of. Um, Uh, That You know, their their kind of rendezvous, their their boat that was meant to be picking them up didn't turn up for various reasons. Um, And twice in Guernsey, this was where this happened, the um, Attorney General of Guernsey, a guy called Ambrose Sherwill, tried to essentially kind of intervene to save these guys' lives. Because if the Germans found them and recognised them as spies, which is effectively what they were, they would be shot. Uh, and, and he knew them, you, you know, these were like his son's friends, if you know what I mean They weren't just any old islanders I mean, I mean, hopefully he would have done it for any old islanders But he also, you know, was familiar with them So in the first instance these two guys um, Holland and Martel, with their names Literally turned up on his doorstep and he saw them and thought oh my god, you, you know Because he knew they were supposed to be in the British forces and here they were in Guernsey um, And he managed it very successfully the first time uh, by he, he put them up in his loft secretly. Um, he, uh, or in his attic. He um, went and found some old First World War uniforms for them, and uh, got someone to kind of modify them to sort of update the, you know, badges or whatever to make them look a bit more like uh, Second World War uniforms, basically. And then took them into the German forces and said, "Oh, some some British soldiers have arrived." And it kind of the first time it worked. So they were treated as prisoners of war, not as spies. They weren't shot. They were sent away. Then this whole thing happened again. Two more guys, they were called Nickel and Simes, um, ended up being stuck on the island. They were kind of living there for about six weeks, quite a long period of time, uh, living undercover. They were camping out in their school's old cricket pavilion, and people were kind of family members, and so on, were bringing them food and you know and stuff and trying to help them out. Um, and one of them was the son of one of Sherwell's colleagues who eventually came to, to tell him about it and say, look, we've got this problem. I don't know what to do. My son's here as a spy. You know, can you do anything to help? This time he tried to kind of repeat the trick with the old uniforms and, and sort of um, trying to work this out. And what happened was he managed to arrange with the German commandant an amnesty where basically uh, the commandant announced that anyone who turned themselves in, any soldiers who turned themselves in, because there had been these raids and the, the, there was kind of understanding that there were, um, the Germans knew that there were some British soldiers in the island somewhere and they didn't know re- really where they were or, or what was going on. Um, if they turned themselves in, they would be treated as prisoners of war. They would not be shot. They'd be sent to a, a POW camp and um, and anyone who had harbored them or helped them would not be punished for helping them. Um, so they made this arrangement quite controversially. I mean, Sherwell, sure, we could talk about if you want, it's quite a controversial figure. Uh, Churchill was very down on Sherwell. Sherwell but Churchill basically thought uh, Sherwell was, you know, one step away from a collaborator because his relationship with the Germans was so good. He tried, he, he put it, um, he described it as trying to run the occupation for them and and his his goals were good in a sense in that what he wanted to do was to protect his own people but I think most people would argue he went a bit too far uh, in 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 the ways that he tried to do that. And the most, for me, extraordinary thing that Sherwell did of all the questionable decisions that he made was when he was trying to sort out this amnesty. Now, granted, he's trying to save two young men's lives. Uh, one of them is the son of a, a colleague and friend of his. Um, what he proposed to the commandant was that, because um, this was a new commandant he just arrived, he was fairly new in the job, He said rather than you putting out a kind of proclamation saying there's going to be this amnesty and the people of the island won't trust it and they'll think well we don't know this German you know what if he goes back on his word um why don't we sort of do it together and what we can do is we can write uh letters to each other where you know you propose an amnesty and I write back and say oh what an excellent idea yes we support that entirely and we can publish these letters in the local newspaper um and then people will see that kind of I'm on board and I trust you and I I know that this is genuine and it's going to be done kind of done by the books and so on and the commandant said yes that's an excellent idea I think that's a very good idea sort of feeling that like he and Sherwell were kind of on the same side regarding this issue Um, and then the thing that Sherwell then suggested which I find absolutely mind-blowing is he then said to the German in fact I tell you what why don't you let me uh, write both letters Uh, because I know what will sell this to my people I know what will sell this to the islanders basically what the Guernsey people will want to hear Uh, And so he wrote these two letters. He wrote a letter to himself from the German commandant in deliberately bad English. And then he wrote a letter back responding, saying, yes, what an excellent idea in his normal kind of perfect English. And then sent them both to the newspaper to be published. Um, But it worked in so far as uh, you know, the, the, they, they were then allowed to turn, they then turned themselves in. Uh, there was this amnesty that was officially announced. But the problem is what then happened is that the decision was kind of referred. What well, Once the two guys had handed themselves in, the decision was referred all the way back to Berlin. And the decision there was taken that the commandant should never have uh, offered this amnesty and that spies should be shot. Anyone who assisted spies should be thrown in prison and punished severely. Um, that basically this was a very serious matter, they needed to set an example, and that the commandant should not have agreed to um, such lenient treatment, essentially. And so there was a row between the commandant and the sort of higher-ups in Berlin. The commandant threatened to resign at one point, uh, and it all turned very nasty, basically. Sherwell Mm. himself ended up being arrested because it was discovered that he had had a role, that he'd known what was going on, basically, and he'd been lying to the Germans about it. He ended up losing his job, As a result, uh, the families, the girlfriends, the parents of these two young guys uh, were brought in for questioning. Everyone was interrogated in terrifying fashion. Mm. And they all ended up in this prison in France where um, one of the fathers of one of these two young lads uh, committed suicide or possibly even, you know, some people believe was murdered uh, by the Germans in his cell. But most likely committed suicide because he believed his son was about to be executed, and, and you know who knows maybe the families were going to be executed too. Um, they were sentenced to death, the two men and then at the last minute, uh, they were given a kind of um, there was a moment of clemency basically, and they were, the, the sentences were commuted, and they were allowed to be prisoners of war as the plan had been all along and to be sent off to a POw camp and so on and the islanders you know uh, who'd been sent to prison in France aside obviously from the one who died, were brought back. Um, Sherwell was uh, told he could never hold public office again under the Germans, so he lost his job and basically went back home and spent the rest of the war gardening, uh, growing vegetables in his garden at home. Um, But it kind of, that I suppose was probably the first instance that really, and this was only around kind of winter time of that first year, 1940, that really shook the people's confidence that the Germans could be trusted they'd come in very kind of nice very polite very reasonable and yet here was an example of them categorically going back on their word and proving or at least threatening to be much more brutal and much more scary than they had sort of seemed to be initially so it was kind of moments like this really that gradually deteriorated that relationship with the war.
2: Let's talk about the local people. I mean, wasn't mm-hmm. boredom a massive problem uh, at the time?
3: Yeah, I mean, funnily enough, I, I interviewed about 100 people for this book, and I asked them all the same question at the end of the interview. I said, you know, what was the worst thing about being occupied by the Germans for those five years and some of them said to me uh, oh we just couldn't get enough food to eat you know we were there's a reason uh, that that movie was called the potato peel pie society you know people were literally uh, resorting to eating potato peel pies like what you can make if all you've got is potatoes uh, people were gleaning on the beaches for um carrageen moss to brew up into a disgusting salty blanquette um people were gleaning in the fields for you know discarded uh, stumps of broccoli that they could eat and so on Um, other people told me it was the kind of the anxiety that just the sort of terror not knowing what was going to happen for some people it was the threat of of you know being sort of turned on by the germans one way or another uh you, you know not feeling they could trust them feeling in danger for their life and their and their safety um but a surprising number of people gave the same answer which was not one that i'd expected when i set off on this kind of research trip and set off um you know, investigating this, they said it was just cripplingly boring, basically, their lives had been uh, constrained so much. And it's funny, I mean, you know, I feel like we're getting a small taster of that in some ways with life under lockdown. Uh, You know, we can't see our friends, we can't do the things that we're used to doing. Um, I mean, the Channel Islanders could see their friends to some extent, uh, but their, their social lives were heavily curtailed insofar as there was a curfew that would shift what time it was um, sometimes it was as early as 9 p.m so you couldn't really spend an evening in the pub with your friends um, their entertainment was very limited uh the cinemas in the island basically the only films that they had the only english language films that they had to show uh, were th- whatever films happened to be there when the germans arrived and this was after the germans had confiscated them watched them all carefully to check that they weren't you know subversive propaganda or whatever and then given them back to the cinemas but after a few months everyone had seen you know everything that was playing in the islands essentially and the only new films coming in were german films um and the locals were allowed to go and i spoke to various people who um said they did indeed go to the cinema uh, to watch the German movies. they divide the auditorium down the middle. So the Germans sat on one side and the locals on the other. And the German side was always packed, apparently. The local side was, you know, there'd be a handful of people who really had nothing better to do. But once you'd seen one or two German propaganda films, um, There was a film called Seek, Invest and Victory in the West, which you can kind of imagine that, you you know, what that might have been like. Uh, They were quite depressing for the local people because they were all about how the Germans were going to, you know, smash the rest of the world and have their thousand year Reich. And, you know, everything was going their way. And ultimately people sort of decided look, this is not this is not passing the time. This is just making me feel even worse about everything. Um, So boredom was really. A massive problem. Also travel, I mean the people lived in these islands, they're small islands, but at least before you could travel between the islands which had become almost impossible now, you needed a permit, you needed a really good reason, you know people would travel to France uh, for, for holidays, they traveled to mainland Britain, you know the people in the islands weren't necessarily used to literally being stuck there uh, full time. Um, so boredom was a massive problem and what I discovered uh, researching this book which I absolutely had not expected going into it, was one of the main ways that people dealt with this problem, what they called um, mental blackout uh, during the occupation, was amateur dramatics came into their own in a massive way. So because the cinemas were unable to show you know, new movies that would catch people's attention, many of the cinema proprietors turned them over to live performance. Uh, so I interviewed several people, for example, who were involved in a variety company in Guernsey called the Lyric Number One Company. The Lyric had been the kind of one of the big cinemas in Guernsey and now became this sort of hub of variety performance. And there was a man called Eric Snelling who ran the cinema and he became this sort of impresario, basically. He would go around the island anywhere there was, you know, a local concert or a local kind of any kind of local performance in a parish. He would go and scope out the best performers. And then, you know, the next morning there'd be a knock on the door and he'd be saying, Will you come and join my troop? You know, I want you for the variety company. And the people that I spoke to who got involved in these companies, you know, they really felt they were doing war work in a sense. They were keeping people's spirits up. They were kind of um, raising the morale on the islands because this was one thing that people could do. They could go and see these shows, uh, and they were always packed. You know, they played to nothing but sold out houses. Um, and people just loved it. It was a you know it, they could take their minds off the kind of stultifying boredom of their situation. They could be entertained, and this was really uh, and for the performers, it was also you know it was something to do. It was a feeling they could do something tangible that was actually um, making things better, rather than just sitting there and waiting it out. Which I suppose you, you know again, slight parallel with the situation we're in now. Really, what the islanders have been told by the British, in effect, was we're fighting the war, you just sit there and wait. And that's, you know, your job is to sit there and wait and try not to get killed. Um, And people found that very difficult.
2: Um, I have to ask just briefly, what happened to the Jewish population of the Channel Islands?
3: Well, this is one of the uh, obviously darker sort of sides of the occupation story. And it's quite a complicated one because different things happened in different islands. um, And uh, and there was also a degree of misunderstanding around it. Quite wisely, the majority of Jews in the Channel Islands evacuated when there was that period of evacuation for about a week and people were sending their kids away, people were you know, leaving themselves. Most of the Jews wisely took the decision to leave and go to mainland Britain where they were indeed much safer. Um, not all of them, however. And, and this is where, again, one of the major controversies of the island uh, leaders comes in. Sherwell in Guernsey, for example, had a bit of a row with his own... Uh, Parliament, basically, because he, he, his understanding was that all the Jews in Guernsey had left. And, he, and I think he did genuinely believe that. I think as far as he understood, that was the case. They'd all gone. And so when the Germans started asking him to uh, put through the same anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic legislation that they'd been putting through, you know, in Vichy France, basically, um, his feeling was, well, I don't like this, but it's not going to hurt anyone. And he made this argument to the other politicians in the in the kind of legislature that, you know, yes, we may not agree with these laws, but our priority is, you know, as I've said, to kind of uh, keep the Germans sweet, to keep our own population safe, to go along with things as much as we can and only, you know, stick our necks out when we absolutely have to. And so his view was that if there were no Jews to be harmed by these rules, which initially were things like registering Jews, uh, registering Jewish businesses, ultimately closing down Jewish businesses, and so on, uh, then they should basically agree to pass the legislation and make it law in the islands. One um, juror, one legislator argued against this and said basically they should all be ashamed of themselves and it didn't matter if anyone was going to be harmed by these laws. They were wrong, you know, and they shouldn't be passing immoral laws. Um, and Sherwell, in his memoirs, actually says that he he sat there listening to this guy making this impassioned speech and feeling, yeah, he's right, you know, what I'm doing is I'm doing the wrong thing but, you know, that's, that was the job that he felt he'd been, he'd been given, he'd been put in this situation. Now unfortunately, I don't think Sherwell ever knew this because he was long dead before these stories came out, he was wrong in thinking that all the Jews had evacuated. There were in fact three Jews uh, in Guernsey, well there, there, were, there were more, there were a handful of Jews in Guernsey um, still. Some of them managed all right for various reasons. One of them, for example, had married a Christian and claimed that she was now a Christian. Uh, some of them when they were investigated, because there were these investigations performed by the local police with with the Germans, essentially. Um, in Sark, which was one of the smaller islands, there was uh, a woman who was a, a Jewish woman, basically who uh, that they kind of knew she was a Jew, but she managed, she argued so vociferously and so convincingly that she could prove this Aryan family tree, that in the end they sort of gave up because they couldn't prove it. And, they, they, and also she happened to be friends with the Dame of Sark, which I think probably helped in her case because the Dame was the kind of local uh, leader on the island. So people found various ways around it. Some ended up hiding. I mean, one of the other uh, Guernsey politicians actually hid, I think he had a Jewish girlfriend who he, he, he hid from the Germans for five years. Um, but unfortunately, there were three uh, Jews in particular Marianne Grunfeld, uh, August Spitz and Therese Steiner, who um, were basically rounded up, were sent away, were sent to the concentration camps and were killed. So, you know, at least three Jewish women from Guernsey lost their lives, um, you know, during the course of the occupation. Those in Jersey, for whatever reason, um, there were about a dozen, I think, who were kind of identified and registered. They didn't end up being sent to concentration camps. What happened was, and this was the case actually with the Jewish woman who had married a a Christian, she married the local baker in Guernsey, Uh, the the treatment, basically the treatment was slightly haphazard and it didn't necessarily, not everyone got the same outcome, if you know what I mean, but those in Jersey um, ended up being sent not to a concentration camp but to um, an internment camp because what happened was in 1942, uh, very controversially another one of these things that turned the islanders against the Germans and kind of uh, created tension in that relationship was there was a deportation of British-born islanders. The Germans had got this idea that if they could split the kind of um, the islanders who'd been there for generations from the kind of recent arrivals because these were you know as I say beautiful holiday islands lots of people retired there lots of people you know moved there later in life basically because they or they go on holiday there and think gosh I'm, you know I want to live here it's so wonderful uh, if they could take those people out of the equation they felt that the islands would be uh, less anti-german somehow because it was really the British population that they felt was the kind of you know the anti-German sentiment was coming from. In fact, it had the opposite effect. The local people were horrified at seeing their neighbours, their friends, you know, people that they'd grown up with, uh, being singled out and treated in that way. And if anything, it, it turned those that remained. Uh, it made them more hostile to the German regime. Um, but what ended up happening with the Jews in Jersey was they actually got sort of uh, bundled in with those British people, and indeed with some of the Jews in Guernsey who had, you know, extenuating circumstances, like the woman who married. Um, Uh, a Christian, you know, a a local person. And so they were sent to the internment camps. Um, That woman, her name was Elizabeth Duckman. I actually spoke to her daughter. Uh, She described, you know, life in the internment camps, which was not too bad, to be perfectly honest. I mean, uh, obviously no one wants to be living in a prison camp, but they were treated pretty well. They were um, actually, again, in a weird way, they were encouraged to set up their own local councils that would effectively run the camps with the German, you know, there were Germans with guns there, but they were kind of leaving the Islanders to their own devices in the camps. The main thing that this woman um, said was that her her mother uh, actually spoke German, so she was quite useful to the Islanders because she could kind of negotiate with the Germans. But she was very anxious to kind of keep her head down because she didn't really want anyone to clock that she was Jewish. She didn't really want that to be brought up one way or another. Um, so it basically it varied depending on where you were um, some ended up hiding out I mean in Jersey there was a physiotherapist who hid a Jewish woman in his basement for five years I spoke to the son of a man who was a hairdresser who used to be sent down to cut her hair because they felt that she would you know being confined like that it was affecting her mental health and at least she could have a haircut that would kind of improve things um, but basically it depended where you were and you know it depended on luck largely but the, the numbers were small because of the uh, high incidence of evacuation um, of the Jewish population at the beginning of the war, but some were unfortunate. There were the three who died from Guernsey. There were two Jews in Jersey who, uh, you know, were not sent to the camps, but who died. One had a heart attack, one um, committed suicide, you know, as a result of these kind of anti-Semitic measures that were being taken against them.
2: Um, How does all of this um, end? I mean, when were the islands liberated?
3: So the islands were liberated basically, well, uh, the day after V-Day, and this is a kind of controversial story. Every, everyone on the islands expected the islands to be liberated after D-Day, because obviously if you're, you know, you're going across the channel from Britain to France, uh, the D-Day invasion literally went right past them. They saw all the planes flying over, they, you know, they could probably see the boats, I think. I mean, they, they could uh, see and hear the fighting uh on the beaches uh in france you know they they kind of knew exactly what was going on and people although they were meant to have handed in their radios had held on to illegal radios many people in the islands were sort of ready to to join in they were expecting this invasion force any moment after d-day some of them if they had know old guns stashed in the cellar that the germans didn't know about they'd be getting them ready thinking that they could be fighting in the streets basically and then what happened uh was it didn't happen. Um, That invasion never took place. And so after D-Day, a lot of the islanders felt very uh, angry and very kind of resentful that the British had, not only had they abandoned them, you know, four years earlier, but now they'd abandoned them again. They'd gone on to fight and they were, you know, as the days and weeks went on and they were kind of pressing forward, heading towards Berlin. um, It seemed like the islands had been completely forgotten about. Now, in fact, they hadn't been forgotten about. It was a decision that was taken Eisenhower, in particular, had argued very strongly that um, he did not want, certainly did not want, American uh, troops going into these islands, which were you know, densely populated in the cities anyway, uh, had an extremely high proportion of, uh, you know, in some cases, almost a kind of uh, one to two, or in, in some areas even I think, a one to one ratio of, of Germans to locals. Um, he was terrified at the number of locals that would end up being killed, basically, in a sort of botched operation. And furthermore, the islands were hugely fortified, as I say. I mean, the Channel Islands were the most heavily fortified part of Hitler's Atlantic Wall. So they were going to be a nightmare to conquer. And so what the Allies decided was they would just leave them and the islands would uh, be cut off. They'd be cut off from their trading with France. Uh, They would gradually start to starve. They would sort of starve them into submission, effectively, which was not good for the local people because it meant that they were um, basically starving alongside the Germans for a long period uh, up until... um, Christmas of 1944, when the Red Cross started bringing in supplies for the locals. Uh, and then it was really the Germans who were starting to starve. So the, the, the sort of tail end of the war was really the the toughest period for the local people. For the local people, it was that it was that period between D-Day. Uh, so about six months between D-Day and the end of 1944, where people were literally dying of malnutrition. Um, you know, people were getting extremely sick, uh, really desperate measures. And then uh, that then the next uh, you know, the sort of uh, beginning of 1945 was actually the tables kind of turned in a strange way. So the local people were getting these food deliveries. Uh, They were actually fine. The Germans were the ones starving. The Germans were the ones, you know, uh, eating the seaweed and the, you know, stumps of broccoli and uh, shooting seagulls and eating them. Uh, A lot of people told me their cats and dogs went missing because the Germans were resorting to eating pets. Um, So there was this weird kind of turnaround where in the final months of the war the Germans, their, their morale completely collapsed. I mean I spoke to this, this German, uh, he was a medic, German guy that I spoke to, Werner, who um, told me about the, the um, commandant by this point. Unfortunately they've got this very um, fanatical Nazi commandant now. Uh, for, throughout most of the occupation they'd had these quite laid-back, quite measured commandants, they were generally kind of career army officers, they were not uh, signed up national socialists they were if anything they tended to look down on Hitler they you know saw him as a bit of an upstart. This guy was a total kind of Hitler obsessive fanatical Nazi who's a guy called Huffmeyer who had come in after D-Day because various um, Germans were caught out on D-Day and basically sort of retreated to the Channel Islands rather than be captured by the uh, British and so he had taken over and was determined to hold out he said to the bailiff of Jersey um, when this ends, it'll just be you and me left and we'll be eating grass. That was his view, you know, if everyone starved, if all the locals start, if all his own men start, he was fine with that, he was never gonna surrender. And so what happened was um, when the war was over, essentially, you know, the, the war had come to an end, on VE Day, uh, Churchill announced, um, famously in his VE Day address, he said, our dear Channel Islands are also to be freed today. And everyone expected that to happen. But when the uh, ships arrived, the liberation forces arrived, um, there were two ships called Bulldog and Beagle. Uh, Huffmeyer, this fanatical uh, German Admiral, sent a message over to them saying that if they crossed into his territory like one minute before midnight or whenever the, you, you know, the appropriate moment, basically, as he saw it when he was obliged to surrender, he would fire on them, uh, even though they were, they were there ready to liberate the islands as planned. And Brigadier Snow, who was the one in charge of these liberation forces, was so incensed, he sent a message back saying, if you dare to fire on one of my ships, I will personally have you hanged tomorrow morning in the town square. But at the same time, they didn't want to risk it. They knew this guy was a fanatical Nazi, so they withdrew. So there was again a period, a sort of 24-hour period of waiting. Uh, where the islanders, I mean, they knew they, that it had all come to an end. Now they they knew the game was up. The Germans did essentially, but again, they were forced to wait one more day. So, although VE Day happened um, on the eighth of May, Liberation Day, which is still celebrated in the Channel Islands, you know, to this day as a massive national holiday festival, uh, happened on the 9th of May. So it was then that the um, British were finally allowed in. You know, the troop ships uh, disgorged their their liberation forces. Um, the commandant was kind of arrested and taken away and there was the biggest party, you know, the islands had ever known. I mean, everyone I spoke to remembered what that moment of liberation was like, how they spent that time. Um, one woman told me she went out dancing that night and because it was the first time there'd been no curfew for uh, five years, she literally danced all night until morning until her feet were bleeding uh, onto the dance floor. Um, others told me they, they spent the whole day brewing up pots of tea for the Tommies who were arriving and making sure every one of them had a cup of tea. Um, several people told me that they, uh, they'd go into town to celebrate and then went home and conceived a liberation baby, which was a kind of, there was a, a, a mini baby boom in the Channel Islands nine months after liberation, because that was how so many people apparently decided to spend liberation day. So, you know, one way or another, everyone found their own way to celebrate. Um, but for some of them, there was kind of uh, Not sadness, exactly, but it was a a poignant moment as well. I mean, I spoke to one guy who told me he went down into the town. uh, He watched as the Tommies were arriving and he he said basically his thoughts were more not so much on the, the happy moment, but more about what he'd endured over the past five years. And he said for him, when I asked him what was the most difficult thing, he said it was just this feeling that he couldn't be himself. He couldn't speak his mind. He was always conscious. Someone might be listening. Someone might be about to report him. Uh, you know, if he said the wrong thing, he could get in trouble, he could get thrown in prison. Um, And he said he just stood there basically watching that day with tears streaming down his face, uh, filled with this realization that he could finally, he was free, basically, you know, he could be himself, he could live his own life and no one else was controlling him anymore.
2: Just amazing. Um, Duncan, thank you so much for coming on and giving us such a comprehensive overview of World War II in the Channel Islands. Um, We'd had a couple of requests for a podcast on this, um, and I think you've done it proud.
3: That's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. And just tell everyone again if they want to read the book. The book is called When the Germans Came in paperback. The hardback was called Hitler's British Isles, so don't get confused and buy both, but uh, paperback (laughs) is When the Germans Came.
2: You're an honest man. Uh, Many an author would have (laughs) let them buy both. Um, Take care, stay safe, and thank you once again. (laughs) Join us tomorrow when we will finally be getting to ancient Egypt. Nigel Hetherington will be with us to talk all about the Valley of the Kings and Egyptian archaeology, which we absolutely can't wait for. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. All you have to do is go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. We'd very much like to keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus crisis, but need your help. There now follows a public service announcement.
3: I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both.